The following audio is from Citizens Church in Charlotte, North Carolina. If you're interested in getting involved with our family, visit citizenscharlotte.com connect. Our teaching text this evening comes from John 5, 1 through 17. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool, in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I am going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, get up, take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. They asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was. For Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, see, you are well, sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered him, my father is working until now, and I am working. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. Well, if you do have a Bible uh, or your bulletin or a phone or whatever, go ahead and get to John chapter 5. That's where we're going to be hanging out uh, this evening. If we haven't met before, my name is Tim. I serve as the, the pastor here at Citizens. If you're new, I uh, especially want to welcome you. Uh, we exist to be a Jesus-centered family on mission with him. We're a pretty new church plant trying to uh, reach the east side of Charlotte with the good news of the gospel. Uh, we got started this past January, so we're nine months into the thing. So if you're new, uh, it's a good time to be around because everybody is semi-new like you, uh, and that's okay. But we are working through through a series called The Fruit of the Spirit in a Time of the Flesh. And we're going to be uh, hopping back into that tonight. Let me pray for us, and then we'll get into God's Word together. Let's pray. God, thank you for who you are. God, thank you that you have put your Spirit within us. And so we walk in your peace, we walk in your grace, we walk in your mercy, and we walk in your victory. And I pray as we uh, take some time to look at your word tonight, God, that we will continue to be shaped by your spirit. We will look more and more like Jesus. We will look more and more like you call us to look, that our lives, our habits, our rhythms, our routines would more and more reflect the fruit of the spirit. And so we're desperate for you. And you promise that uh, where your word is preached and proclaimed, that it will not return void, God. And so we trust you with that in our lives, trust you with that in our hearts. Love you. Probably things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, we got a few weeks left, uh, four to be exact, in this series on the fruit of the Spirit. And I hope it's been helpful for you to spend the fall considering and thinking about your discipleship to Jesus, how you might look more and more like Christ in your everyday life. I was introduced to this phrase a few uh, weeks ago that the early church, the early followers of Jesus, used to say to each other to encourage one another through their long obedience to Jesus, through the highs and lows of life, through doubt, through persecution, they used to remind each other and say this, we do not speak great things, but we live them. 
We do not speak great things, but we live them. And that's basically been the sum goal of this series is that we would not simply speak the right things. We would not simply know the right things, assent uh, not in our minds and our hearts to the fruit of the spirit to say, yeah, love's a good idea. Joy's a good idea. But we would actually live embodied lives that look more and more like Christ, that we as a church, as a collective family, would not just simply speak great things, but actually live them. And we're going to continue along that vein tonight of seeking to do that by talking about goodness in a time of brokenness. Goodness in a time of brokenness. Let's start like we have been by first talking about this time that we live in. Let's, let's talk about brokenness. We live in a time of brokenness. Things, people, systems, structures, they're They're broken. The world is not as it should be. Our lives are not as they should be. Dr. George Morelli, I think, sums it up really well. He says this, Brokenness is the term that describes the fundamental disorder that exists in creation. The fundamental disorder that exists in creation. We we see this fundamental disorder on an individual level in our lives. Right? Broken homes that are, are marked by hurt or abuse or divorce or abandonment. Broken relationships like we addressed last week with those around us. Broken bodies. We experience pain and hurt and sickness and death. Broken hopes. Broken dreams. Broken desires of life not working how we want it to work. We see this on an individual level. We also see this on a macro level in the systems of our society. We have a broken economic system. Right? 40 million Americans live at or below the poverty line. 43% of global wealth is held by 1% of the, of the world population. We have a broken political system. Polarization of the left and the right. This disappearing middle ground. This throwing stones at people that disagree with us. Everything being politicized and turned into attacks. We have a broken educational system. Drastic disparities in resources, even right here in CMS. We live in a time of brokenness. And here's the deal. You don't have to be a follower of Jesus. You don't have to be uh, an apprentice to Christ to know something is not right. Right? Like you don't have to, to claim to be a Christian to know this is off. Our world is broken. The world is not as it should be. This is a heavy and burdensome weight. But what often compounds our pain is that in the midst of the brokenness, there's a lot of confusion in our world apart from God about what the brokenness actually is, what is good, and how we get to that good. There's a lot of confusion over the path forward. What is good? How do we seek good? What is the end goal? 1981, a Scottish-American philosopher named Alasdair MacIntyre, he wrote a book called After Virtue. And in this book, he argued that the modern West had become what he called a post-virtue society. That he said it has been characterized by basically the absence of any coherent moral code. So in our society, he said 40 years ago, and I would argue much more true today, we cannot agree with the person next to us or across the street about what is right and what is wrong. We don't have a coherent moral code of goodness. So we know kind of intuitively something feels off here, but we don't know what it is and what is the good we're seeking and how we get to that good. Professor John Koenig, he wrote a few, a few years ago, wrote this brilliant book. He called it The Dictionary of Obscure Sorrows. And what he did, it's a really fascinating book. He basically makes up a bunch of words to define all the bad feelings that we don't have words for. And one of those words that he wrote was the word paro. And paro he defined as the feeling that no matter what you do, it's always somehow wrong. 
as if there's some obvious way forward that everybody else can see but you. After hearing that, I want to stop calling it parenting and start calling it parenting. Right? Like, to parents in the room, do you feel that? Like, this inability to go, I don't think I can do anything right, and it feels like everybody else around me knows what to do but me. Lindsay and I laugh about how if you Google hard enough and long enough, you can find a, a yes to anything you want with your kid. Right? So if you Google long enough, you can find an article that should argue why you should sleep train or why sleep training is the worst thing you can ever do in your life. Why you should let your kid cry it out. You can also find an article that why you should never let your kid cry it out. You can find support for why one parent should stay at home and the other one should work. Why neither parent should stay at home and you should get a nanny or put them in daycare. Why both parents should stay at home, which I personally like that option. It's just ridiculous, right? And parenting is just one slice of life, but all of us feel this innate goodness confusion. Like we don't know the way forward. So think about marriage, right? Marriage is broken. 50% of marriages in America end in divorce. Marriage is broken. So some people would say, we need stronger marriages. We need to, to push the modern marriage. We need to push this new, we need to support husbands and wives, and we need to push the, flu the flourishing of marriages. Other people say, no, marriage is outdated. Marriage is bad. The problem is that marriage is this outdated system enforced on our society. We would say, okay, the economy's broken. Some of us would say, well, the, the path forward is we need more free enterprise. We need more capitalism. We need less government regulations. And then a whole other group would say, no, we need more regulations. We need less capitalism. We need less free enterprise. The educational system is broken. We need more resources in underprivileged communities. We need more backing for the public schools. Well, no, public schools aren't the answer. We need more charter schools. We need scholarships for private and Christian schools. Hey, the under-resourced communities. We need to serve the poor. We need to step in and provide resources. No, we need to let them figure it out on their own and raise themselves up. Whatever the case may be, we live in a time of brokenness. And it hurts, and it's difficult, and it's painful. Things in our lives and things in the world are not as they should be. And then there's this extra layer of, we don't know what to do about it. We don't know the path forward. We don't know what is good. We don't know what we're seeking after. And into the midst of that, we see the way of Jesus the fruit of goodness. Let's talk about goodness. Galatians 5, Paul lists the fruit of the Spirit, and he says this, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. That word goodness in the text is the Greek word agathosune, and it carries with it a sense of beauty or truthfulness or usefulness. So one scholar in talking about it, he said this, he said, goodness is defined by the purpose for which it was created. Goodness is defined by the purpose for which it was created. So the question of, is it good, can really be asked as, did the thing do what it was intended or supposed to do? So think about it this way. Imagine you come over to my house and you borrow my lawnmower. And I say, great, here you go, take your lawnmower, cut your grass, all good. You bring the lawnmower back to your place, and instead of using the lawnmower to mow the grass, you instead decide to use it to vacuum your living room rug. Doesn't go well, right? You bring it back to my house, I say, hey, how'd it go? How'd, it, how'd the lawnmower work? And you said, Tim, it's not a very good lawnmower. I would have some questions for you. <laughs> That's an indictment not on the goodness of the lawnmower. That's an indictment on your ability to use the goodness of the, the lawnmower, when we ask, is it good? We are asking, did it satisfy its intended role? Well, then you have to ask the question, who gets to decide the intended role? Well, that's obvious, the one who created it, right? You and I don't get to decide the purpose of the lawnmower. Who gets to decide? An English guy named Edwin Bear Bunning in 1830. He holds the patent. I Googled it. He's the one who gets to decide what a lawnmower's intended purpose is because he's the one who created it. All right, stay with me. Here's what this means for us as Christians. We believe God is good. 
right? Psalm 119.68, the psalmist says, you, O God, are good and you do good. Jesus, in the Gospels, he says there's no one good but God alone. So we believe God is good. We also believe that God is the creator and designer of all things, that he created all things, he directs all things toward an intended purpose, toward a, a telos, a goal. He's aiming his creation towards a purpose. We believe God's good. We believe that he's the creator of all things. We also believe that originally creation was in perfect sync with God's good design and purposes. So in Genesis 1.31, God gets done creating all things and he declares over his creation that it is very good. It's very right. It's exactly as it should be. It's in perfect harmony and flourishing. That is goodness. Christian goodness, if I can define it for us, Christian goodness is people, places, institutions, and the like living in the flourishing of God's design. It's people, places, institutions, and the like living in the flourishing of God's design. So when a medical system is functioning properly, and people can get access to the healthcare they need, the doctors, the medicine, that is goodness. When a family is functioning in line with God's design, when a, a husband and a wife love one another and sacrifice for one another and lead their children towards Jesus, that is goodness. When an individual turns from their sin, places their trust in Jesus, says no to sin and yes to God, his purposes, his will in their lives, that is goodness. Goodness is people, places, institutions, and the like living in the flourishing of God's design. So we have in the Bible a picture and a definition of goodness. But here's the thing. We also have a story behind the brokenness, right? We have in the Bible a story of what the Bible would call sin, God creates everything good. He creates it just right, flourishing as it should be, Genesis 131. But in Genesis 3, Adam and Eve rebel against God. They sin, and this brings a curse and brokenness upon everything, upon them as individuals, upon all humans who would come after them, and upon the things of this earth. So everything, you and I and everything in the world are now broken apart from God. We are no longer functioning in God's flourishing design. So God defines what is good, and brokenness through sin is the absence of that good. But here's the good news for us. God doesn't leave it there. God doesn't leave it in the brokenness. He steps in to restore humanity and creation back to its original design of flourishing with him. And that's the fruit of goodness. That's what we're called to step into, that God defines good, brokenness through sin is the absence of that good, and then God and we, his people, join him in the work of restoring things back to his flourishing design. It's how theologian Joe Beers, that is his real name, this is how Joe Beers says it. He says, the call to goodness is a total reversal of the fragmented, broken, incompetent state of the world as it currently stands. I love that. Goodness steps into the fragmented, broken, fundamentally disordered state of our world and joins with God in bringing redemption and renewal and flourishing. So with that, let's get to John 5. Let's see the fruit of goodness in the life of Jesus together. I just want to walk through this passage. I want to pull out some distinct markers of the fruit of goodness. This joining God in leading things back to flourishing. John 5, we're going to start in verse 1. It says this, After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. 
In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. So Jesus is in Jerusalem and he goes to a pool. Don't think like swimming pool. Think like hot spring-esque type deal. And it said it's called Bethesda. Bethesda in Aramaic means house of mercy. And surrounding the pool, there's all these different people with all these different ailments. Some are blind, some are paralyzed, and they're hanging out of this pool because it's believed that occasionally an angel of the Lord or a spirit of the Lord would come and would stir up the pool, and the first person to get into the pool would be healed. So if you notice in your text, there's actually no verse 4. Uh, so some of you will have a footnote that'll point you down to verse 4, where it explains this pool, it was believed. If it gets stirred by an angel, you're the first one in. You get healed of whatever it is that you need to be healed from. Then the story in verse 5 is going to kind of zone in on one man. It says, One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? Which is a crazy question from Jesus, right? Like this man has been paralyzed for 38 years. And Jesus says, Hey, do you want to be healed? Which is a very obvious, should be a very obvious yes. But look at how he responds. The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I'm going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, get up, take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed and took up his bed and walked. Here's the first marker of goodness I want us to see. Goodness is intentional. Goodness is intentional. So this is a situation full of brokenness, right? This is a multitude. This could be several hundred. It could be several thousand of people who are, are crippled with disease and different types of physical handicaps. This is a, a complete scene of brokenness. So here's what you have to understand. It is incredibly difficult to live with a physical handicap in any society at any point in history. It's just hard. But in Jesus' day, it was basically a life sentence of poverty and begging. You couldn't work. You couldn't provide for yourself or a family. It was impossible to get around. Many folks wouldn't want to associate with you or be your friend because there was a false belief that you were lame or you had a physical handicap because you sinned and the gods were punishing you. So it was not good in this society to be physically handicapped. So it's a situation of brokenness. And then this man's life is full of brokenness, right? 38 years. Can you imagine almost four decades of laying by a pool, waiting and begging and hoping so much so that when Jesus comes and asks, do you want to be healed? Your answer is not yes. It's there's no way it's going to happen. That's desperate hopelessness, right? Jesus to come to you and say, do you want to be healed? And the first response is, there's no way I'm getting in the pool. Do you see? I can't get there. This is not going to be fixed. This is not going to be healed. This is not going to be redeemed. That's the response of hopelessness. But Jesus willingly and intentionally steps into that brokenness. He shows up in the middle of this situation, this scene. He shows up into the middle of this brokenness of this man's life, and he brings redemption. He doesn't sit back and he's like, you know what? If you want to be healed, you know who I am. I'm Jesus. You can come talk to me and I'll heal you, right? Everybody else is doing that. I was in the house. Those guys cut the roof. They laid him down. Like, you can come to me if you want to be healed. He doesn't do that. He takes a step of initiative. He goes to Bethesda. He goes to the pool of mercy. He goes to the situation of brokenness. He's intentional, saying, I'm going to step into the midst of this brokenness, and I'm going to bring redemption. I'm going to bring flourishing. And in the fruit of goodness, that's the call on our lives as well. If we become more like Jesus, we learn to more and more intentionally move towards the brokenness. Because here's the deal. It's easy to stand back and keep brokenness at arm's length with good desires and good intentions. Right? It's easy to see brokenness in our group, in our neighborhood, in our friendships, in our workplace, in our family, in our lives, and to say, you know what? I hope it works out. You know what? I'm going to pray that it works out. 
I'm going to pray that God does something. I'm going to hope that he's going to renew it. I'm going to hope that he's going to bring flourishing. It's a whole different ballgame of sacrifice to actually step into the middle of it, to actually move forward with intentionality, to actually go towards the pain. But that's the fruit of goodness. The fruit of goodness moves towards. I'm moving towards the hurting person in my community group. I'm moving towards the need of my coworker. I'm moving towards the suffering of my neighbor. I'm moving towards the hurt of my friend or family member. I move towards it. I'm intentional. I'm moving forward with generosity, with compassion, and with presence. Goodness is intentional. We don't wait. We don't stay back. We don't throw good wishes out from an arm's length. We move towards. We move forward. Let's keep going in the story. Verse 9. And at once, the man was healed. And he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. So the Jewish religious leaders, they had taken God's command to observe the Sabbath, keep it holy, and they had added all of these different rules to puff themselves up and make themselves feel better before God and before others. And they cared about this so much that here's a man who has been healed after almost 40 years of being lame and their first response is not celebration, It's not excitement. It's what? Why are you carrying your mat on the Sabbath? Why aren't you following the rules? They confront him. Why are you doing this? Verse 11. But he answered them, the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. They asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. We'll come back to that in a little bit. Verse 15. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. The Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was healing on the Sabbath. This is not the only run-in Jesus is going to have with Jewish religious leaders. It's kind of this continual point of confrontation and tension in his ministry. So he'll heal someone, and they'll be like, you can't do it on the Sabbath. Or he'll feed 12,000 people miraculously with five loaves of bread and two fish, and they'll be like, well, you're from Nazareth, and that's a backwoods town, and your parents weren't married, so whatever, we're not going to listen to you. He welcomes in tax collectors. He welcomes in sinners. He eats with people society rejects, and they call him a glutton and a drunkard, and they ask why he associates with those people. It's just constant over and over and over and over again. And here's what I want us to see in light of that about goodness. Number two, goodness is confrontational. Goodness is confrontational. Sometimes stepping into broken places and joining God and bringing restoration and redemption means you're going to get some backlash. Here's why. Because as followers of Jesus, our view of what is good, our view of goodness is based on the goodness of God. And the goodness of God doesn't shift with the latest cultural trend. The goodness of God doesn't change with who's in elected office. And the goodness of God doesn't flip-flop based on what's trending on social media. And sometimes we can wrongly think that goodness is sort of this like boring beige vanilla type of thing. Right? We can think like, all right, a sermon on goodness, we're supposed to go like do some stuff, serve, love, like woohoo, sing kumbaya, hold hands, praise the Lord together. Like kind of this like, yeah, we get it. This is the Christian thing. But here's the deal. Goodness for Jesus always cost him something. It was confrontational. Goodness is not simply just this kumbaya, let's sing to Jesus together. Goodness requires something because goodness says, not on my watch. Goodness says, I'm going to step in the middle. Here's the deal. As Christians, we're called to be peacemakers, not necessarily peacekeepers. Here's what that means. Sometimes we have to ruffle some feathers in order to push forward in God's design. 
Sometimes we have to be willing to be heard a little bit. For Jesus, stepping into goodness meant death threats from the Pharisees, meant rejection from his hometown. It, it hurt him. We're called to follow in his footsteps. We're called to become like Jesus, which means we stand for God's design of flourishing even when it costs us something, even when it's uncomfortable, even when our fight for goodness and is against what everyone else on our social media feed is saying. Think about some of the great people of history who did this, who sought goodness in the midst of confrontation. So I think about uh, people like Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who in the 1930s, the, the Hitler regime took over the church of Germany. And so he said, I'm not going to pastor in that church anymore. I'm going to start an underground seminary and have my life threatened over and over and over again to train pastors in the good news of the gospel. Think about Harriet Tubman, right, in the 1860s, who risked her life to help lead forward the Underground Railroad and to help free slaves from the South. Think about Christians in ancient Rome who literally during plagues, instead of fleeing the city, would take care of and nurse back to health the very people who wanted to kill them for worshiping Jesus. So what Romans 12, 21 invites us to, it says, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So let me ask you this question. What is the redemptive goodness you're not stepping into because you're afraid it's going to cost you something? What is the redemptive goodness you're not stepping into because you're afraid it's going to cost you something? Maybe for you, it's that friend or family member or that community group member who you know claims to follow Jesus, but has that area in their life, maybe they're either blind to or apathetic towards that you're like, hey, I want to call that out. I want to in love point them back to Jesus, but I'm really afraid it's going to hurt the relationship. I'm really afraid that they're going to reject me, that they're going to push away, that they're going to pull back, that they're going to ghost. And you call it love when really it's fear. It's fear of their opinion of you. It's fear of what they would think. Maybe for some of us, the redemptive goodness we're afraid to stand up for is to stand up for the unborn, to speak out against the injustices of our abortion system in America, to be pro-life from womb to tomb, not just in what we say, but in action and word and deed, even if you know it's not a popular opinion. That's the picture of confrontational goodness. I'm going to stand in the gap with courage, even if it costs me something to say, this is off. This is not God's design. Let me help you get back to flourishing. Let me give you two more. Verse 16. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, my father is working until now, and I am working. Number three, goodness is directional. Goodness is directional. Jesus did a lot of good during his time on earth. He stepped into the midst of a lot of brokenness. He healed, he restored, he forgave, he welcomed in. He did so much. But here's the deal. Jesus didn't do every possible thing he could do. Jesus didn't do every possible act of goodness he could have done. One of the most baffling parts of this story is that there is a multitude, literally several hundred or several thousand people who need healing. And yet Jesus focuses on the one man. And in case you're like, Tim, that's a really faulty argument. I know Jesus. Jesus would have healed everyone. John just didn't include it in the text. That's fine. Here's the other thing. You're not Jesus. You're not fully God and fully man. You're just fully man. You're just fully human. You have finite, limited, with a capacity on your energy, time, and resources, human being. And here's the deal. In order for us to step into the brokenness and join God in his work of redemption, you have to direct your focus. You are a limited creature with limited capacity. And so that means there are areas in your life where you need to stop caring. And there are areas in your life where you need to stop caring so much because you are killing your capacity and your emotional bandwidth and your time bandwidth and your money bandwidth to actually step in and affect change in the areas that God has put you in to actually affect change and bring goodness. 
To put it plainly, because we are limited creatures, we simply cannot do everything there is to do for every need there is. So we have to be directional. This is the, on the practice guide this week. Many, many theologians talk about this idea of what they call moral proximity. Moral proximity is how they kind of come to terms with the fact that the scriptures call us to care for those in need, but there's so many needs. So how do we know what needs to actually step in and care for? How do we actually know what to do? How do we know what goodness is ours? And so they talk about this idea of moral proximity. What they say is that the closer the moral proximity of those in need, the greater the moral obligation to help. So moral proximity uh, doesn't just refer to like geographical, like the location distance proximity. It can mean family, it can mean friendships, it can mean relationships or how long you've known them. But the argument is from scripture, the closer the moral proximity, the more obligation from the scriptures that you have to help. So let me put this on a really ground level for us. If someone across the country is a, who's a follower of Jesus, we'll even say that he's a Christian, their house burns down. And you hear about it through a friend, you hear about it through social media, you hear about it, however you hear about it, You can, when you hear about it, choose to help. You can give, you can pray, you can care, you can tell others, encourage others to give and pray. But here's the deal, you don't have to. Biblically, you are not obligated in that moment to give. Now, if someone in our church, someone who calls Citizens Church home, their house burns down, you have to do something. You're not allowed to step in the back. You're not allowed to say, nope, this one's not me. Not, nope, not gonna handle it. This is somebody else's problem. You have to because you have moral proximity to that person. And so you are obligated biblically to step in and help. And here's why this matters. Part of why we don't step into redemptive goodness is because we believe the lie and temptation that we have to do something about everything. I mean, just think about, if you're like me, hypothetically, and when you wake up in the morning, the first thing you do for, I don't know, we'll say 30 minutes, hypothetically, before you get out of bed, you just scroll through your Instagram feed, or your Twitter feed, or I'm not on TikTok, but your TikTok feed. What are you just blasted with even before you get out of bed in the morning? Need after need after need after need. Care about this thing, care about that thing, care about this thing, care about that thing. And so before you even get out of bed to get ready for your day and face real needs around you that you can actually be a part of stepping into with goodness, you are already burnt out on the needs of the world. You've already given your emotional bandwidth. You've already given away your capacity to care. And so because you are limited in your moral proximity, you have to be directional in the goodness you step into. Let me even just step on a few toes here. Listen, we have no shortage of opinions on how the U.S. government should spend trillions and trillions of dollars. Good thing to care about. Good thing to care about how your tax money, hopefully you pay taxes, how your tax money is being used. That's a good thing to care about. We have no, but we have, here's the deal, we have no shortage of opinions on how politicians spend trillions of dollars when we don't even have a budget for our limited amount of money that we have to where we can actually have capacity to be generous. Let me give you another one. We have no shortage of opinions on how politicians should lead 300 million Americans. Again, good thing to care about should care. Political involvement is a good thing. We preached on it last year. You should go listen to it. Political involvement is a good thing, but we have all these opinions and all of this feeling and all of this care about how politicians should lead 300 million Americans, and we can't even lead ourselves. We can't even get ourselves to get out of bed in the morning and spend time with Jesus. We can't even have a calendar that has margin for people in our lives with needs. Give you a few more. We care a ton about what some 
do people blog anymore? What some blogger or celebrity tweeted and who said what about who and who's beefing with who, which I would just say is that's not a good thing to care about. You should stop caring. If you care about that, stop caring about that. We care so much about what this celebrity will never meet cares about and said about this celebrity will never meet. And we don't care about the names or hurt or suffering of our neighbors next door. I mean, this is me. So in case you think I'm like finger pointing, this is me. For the last two weeks, I have been burdened and broken over following what's happening on the border. This Haitian refugee crisis. And I don't, this is not a political stance. I, I do not know what to do. <laughs> don't get nervous. Don't get weirded out. I don't know. I'm, I know that I'm burdened. I know that I'm burdened by seeing human beings trying to figure it out. And I know we have to do something. And I know the Bible says something about how we care for the immigrant. And so I'm reading God's word. I'm studying. I'm praying. All this kind of stuff. And then Cole Weiner, who leads our Serve Charlotte ministry, who tries to lead our local missions arm in the city, posts about a tangible way that we can love refugees literally 10 minutes from my house. And my first thought is, I care so much about the border but I really hope somebody else responds to this tangible way to love refugees literally five minutes from my house. And we all do this. We all put so much of our care capacity, so much of our care molecules, so much of our bandwidth towards things that are some, a lot of times good things to care about, and we ignore the tangible needs that God has placed right under our noses. Goodness has to be directional. Let me give you one more. Back at verse 14. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. Jesus heals him. He, he comes and he finds him later. And he's probably walking, running, leaping at this point. And he, he says, Go and sin no more. And this is what leads to the fourth marker. Goodness is physical and spiritual. Goodness is physical and spiritual. This is what Jesus does throughout his life. He takes care of the physical suffering, the physical brokenness. He heals, he feeds, he sometimes raises from the dead. He takes care of the physical problem, and then he goes about preaching the kingdom of God. Hey, you have to be born again. Believe, trust in me, give everything away that you have and follow me. And these are the two constant tensions of his stepping in to goodness, that he steps in with physical, tangible, good help. And he also says, hey, you gotta believe and trust in me. And we are called to do the same. We don't just take care of the physical needs. We don't just bring tangible, quote, earthly healing. We also call people to salvation. We also call them to trust in Jesus. So we don't just take the, the meal to our hurting neighbor. That's a good thing. Take the meal to the hurting neighbor. We also want to build a relationship and have conversations and invite them to know Christ. We take care of physical and spiritual. We step in with both. In all of this, this is how we become like Jesus. Step in to the brokenness. We join God in the work he is doing to restore and renew people, places, and institutions back to flourishing with him. And, and here's just what I want to encourage you with as we kind of head towards the close. This is what Christians have been doing for centuries. Like from like 15, 20, 30, 40, 50 AD, followers of Jesus have been stepping into brokenness and bringing goodness. And I, and I, know, I know the church gets a bad rap for a lot. And some of it's warranted. Like, there's some stuff where globally the church is like, this was off in our history. This is off in our present. We need to repent of some things and, and say uh, and own some things. But there's been a lot of good in the history of the church as well. So our modern day hospital system, it was developed by Christians in the Middle Ages responding to medical needs around them. But think about even here in Charlotte, Atrium and Novant, both of the two largest hospitals in our city were founded by groups of followers of Jesus. Other community organizations, YMCA, YWCA, Salvation Army, founded by Christians to serve primarily under-resourced communities. 
Many of the leading universities in the world, Oxford, Harvard, Yale, Princeton, started by Christian theologians to train up future generations of Christian philosophers and theologians to help educate people on the goodness of God. Sunday schools, if you grew up in church, that thing where you learned all the Bible stories, Sunday schools were originally started not just to teach us with felt boards about David and Goliath, but actually they were started to help educate and step into educational gaps brought about on poor communities because of segregated school systems. That's the origin of Sunday schools. The abolition of slavery, both in ancient history and in modern times, led by Christian activists. Frances Willard, a, a woman in New York City who helped lead early movements towards women's rights, devout follower of Jesus. Christians have been responsible for so much good, so much stepping into the brokenness, high regard for human life, crazy developments of art and music and compositions and literature. All of these ways, Christians for thousands and thousands of years, followers of Jesus, see what God has done for them, see the goodness of Christ and step into brokenness and join him in the redemptive work that he's doing. We are just carrying along and the next line of followers of Jesus called to do the same. This is what we do because that's what Jesus did for us. That's the good news of the gospel, right? The gospel is the reality that Jesus stepped into our brokenness. That Jesus saw us in all of our hurt, all of our sin, all of our brokenness. He saw us in all of our evil and rebellion and fleshly uh, independence from God. And yet he stepped into the middle of that. He took on flesh, lived a perfect life, and went to the cross to die the death that our sin and brokenness deserved. He took God's punishment upon himself, and three days later, he rose again. So the offer for all who turn from their sins, who the Bible says repent, who turn from trying to figure out life on our own and trust in Jesus is redemption and forgiveness and healing and salvation. So Jesus says, I stepped into your brokenness to give you my goodness. And so then he calls us to join him in the renewal work that he is doing to offer the same life to others. This is how Titus 2, 14 says it so perfectly. It says this, Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself. That, that's the good news of the gospel part one, right? He redeems us from our sin, redeems us from our lawlessness, redeems us from our uncleansedness. He purifies, he gives us his righteousness. Notice why, to purify for himself a people for his own possession so that we can be his. And then there's the last part, who are zealous for good works. That's the good news of the gospel. That's what we believe and hold to so tightly and cling to so dearly as a church that Jesus came to redeem us from our sin, purify us from our unrighteousness, give us his righteousness, call us his own, and then send us out into the world for good. That's what it means to be a follower of Christ. And so this week, as we think about the fruit of goodness, you got a practice guide. There's only one practice on it this week. Uh, you're actually going to be working through it in your community groups. If you're not in a group, get in a group and then work through it in the group that you just got in. Um, this is our, our practice. Practice is moral proximity. We want to help you. It's so easy, and I'm well aware of this, to preach a sermon on goodness and it feel very large and, well, okay, what do I do? i got to help some people. Like, what do I actually do? And so this week in our groups and in your own time with the Lord, we're going to work through this practice of moral proximity together. We want to help you step by step in the context of followers of Jesus, in the context of community, help discern what the next step is God is calling you to as a follower of him. What is your moral proximity? What is the area, the people, the places, the institutions, the, the whatever that God has put you in where you can affect change and bring goodness and bring flourishing? That's our goal. That's what we're going for this week. Let me pray for us. And Ben's going to come up and then we're going to respond as we always do. God, thank you for who you are. God, thank you for this, this call on our lives. God, thank you for the fruit of goodness. 
but thank you for Jesus. God, thank you that Jesus is not simply the example of goodness. He's not simply the role model of goodness. He's not simply the idea of goodness, but that Jesus himself is good. Scripture says that that God alone is good. That in his goodness, that Jesus went to the cross. He took our brokenness, took our sin, took our evil, took our flesh, took our rebellion against you, died the death we deserve, and yet gives us his goodness, gives us his righteousness. God, and so I pray that we will learn to receive that. God, if there's anybody in the room who who doesn't trust in you, that they would put their trust in you. They would turn from their sin. They would receive Christ's righteousness, his cleansedness, his, his purification, and that we would be a people that you call your own, that we would live as your possessions, zealous for good works. God, would you give us as a church deep zeal for good works? God, would you help my life? God, would you help the lives of those that are a part of our church family? God, would you help us have lives marked by zeal for good works? God, we need you in this. We need you. God, help us to believe the gospel more. Help us to dive further into our adoption as sons and daughters. God, help us not to just see the end part. Yes, good works without and miss the middle. God, that you have purified us, that you have called us your own, that you have rescued us from lawlessness. God, help us to believe the good news of the gospel and let the goodness of the gospel and your Holy Spirit in power send us into the world ready to bring goodness ready to bring people, places, institutions, and the like back to your design of flourishing. We love you. We trust you. Probably things in Jesus' name. Amen.